I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he just got out of a Times Square screening of The Conformist. It's Andy Greenwald! I prefer the old Times Square, man. Oh, who doesn't? Who doesn't? Literally, I don't. Yeah, I don't. No, I actually, literally, I do. I, you prefer I would it? rather get an STD than go to an M&M store. That's a great point. I would just avoid both of them. Okay. Uh, Andy's here. We are talking about The Deuce, the new prestige drama on yes. HBO. Prestige! But Chris, this one's really good. No, man. This, look, you know what? I was talking with Fennessy a couple weeks, like, week or two ago when I had seen the episode and I was telling him, I was like, Dude, the deuce is good. Yeah. And he was like, I need it to be good. I think a lot of people feel that way. I think people are way. looking for like a real, real good yeah. television they show. They want to sink in. That has good actors and good story and is interesting. And I know that sounds really stupid, but it's not. It's not reductive. It's really true. That was my feeling when I watched this too. You and I love David Simon's shows. We love The Wire. Um, you and I love our guest today, George Pelicanos, um, as a writer, a crime novelist, and as a co-conspirator with David Simon. This show, I'm not saying it's better than the things they've done before, but this one is alive in a way that the other ones weren't. It is alive in a more traditional, like, entertaining way. Let's yeah, put it that it, way. It, it is just as serious in yeah. many times, but this show, maybe it's Michelle McLaren directing it. Maybe it's the fact that it's kind of about sex. Uh, maybe it's about New York City. Maybe it's George Pelicanos, and we talked to him about this in the interview, bringing some, like, pulp sensibility to it. This show is just so well done, so rich, so fun to watch, even when the subject matter isn't, that it is just a joy. I mean, there were a lot of red flags coming into it, one of which being James, James Franco playing twins. James Franco playing twins. Just like, I, first of all, first rule of Fight Club, no twins. But guess what? That's my Fight Club. You Second got, rule of Fight Club, if the twins are there, don't let them get played by James Franco. And Third rule with a mustache. And I, I in this conversation we're about to, you're about to hear from George Pelicanos, you and I kind of like, we're like, what? That that was scary for us. And he and the two of us, this guy's just like on his Ratso Rizzo right now. Like he is incredible in this show. Yeah, and it's 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 just one of those things where Franco showed up to work and to act and to just play yeah. this part. And all the cast did from from Maggie Gyllenhaal to Method Man to uh it's a large ensemble. Look, here's the thing. The premiere episode of The Deuce, the extra long premiere episode, we're putting this up now because it's available now. Yeah. The show officially premieres on Sunday. And we could not pass up an opportunity to talk to someone who is so instrumental in our creative, our artistic, or our sure, fandom man. lives. Couple notes on George Pelicanos. Uh, one of our favorite writers, a writer that we were already friends that brought us closer together when DC we crime novelist. tore through every one of his yeah. books almost at the same you pace. Are, I, bet, I know you're tired. Give me the, the 101. There's a couple of distinct periods of Pelicanos. Sure. Um, Pelicanos basically a self-made writer in a lot of ways. I think he was working as a shoe salesman when he wrote his first book. His earliest books, you and I have a real, real soft spot for. Um, these are books called uh, A Firing Offense, Nick's Trip, and Down by the River Where the Dead Men Go. These are very first person, really grimy, a lot of listening to the replacements while doing jump ropes to jumping rope to sweat out last night's whiskey, which, you know, at a certain point in your 20s, when you're reading the book written by a guy in his 20s, it, it kind of sinks up. All Although of it I, except for the, I, the I jump never, rope. never jump rope. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, he sort of has distanced himself from these books, but I love them. His next series were about a, um, I think he, he used the term salt and pepper, accidental crime fighting duo, Marcus Clay and Dimitri Karras. He wrote a series of books where these two friends, one black, one white, grow up with D.C., 
The 70s book, King Sucker Man, amazing. The 80s book, The Sweet Forever, is our double down book club this month. And I really hope people check it out. Uh, he takes it up to the 90s. And then there's a flashback, a flashback, a, a period piece book called The Big Blowdown. Then, yeah, another series. And then, you know, he keeps writing these great books. He's gotten more serious as his subject matter's gotten more serious. And we'll throw up some tweets about, you know, which ones in his oeuvre we recommend. Probably worth mentioning. Uh, I had met George. Uh, George had been on the podcast interview. I interviewed him five years ago. We we did mention, but Is not that on the mic. Uh, it was just because he had a new book out. Okay. Some of his Spiro Lucas books. He worked um, on Treme, though. He did work on Treme. Um, you and I uh, went to see him read from at a Barnes & Noble in Chelsea mm-hmm. about 13 years ago for his book, Drama City. We had a plan. We had a plan. We were going to like... So in The Sweet Forever, The Sweet Forever <laughs> is about... It's set, for the most part, during March Madness. We saw George Reed during March Madness. Yes, it was March. 10 years ago. Four yeah, longer. something like that. And me and Andy, like, you know, you, you, you shoot your shot. And so we thought, <laughs> he's going to seize these two young whippersnappers. I think we yeah. had some people in tow with us. And we, we were like, we don't look like crazy people. We'll just say to George Pelicanos, accomplished crime novelist, like, look, man, you want to kick this, like, farm stand, and let's go out to, like, watch these basketball games, man, and, like, hang out, do a little Knicks trip action. The effect, I think, to him was that we were speaking to him like he was Ethan Hawke and we were Denzel Washington, and we were like, do you like getting wet? Yeah, and we definitely did that thing at book readings where you, like, hang out. Yeah. Which is, like, which is, like, Cool and like lovely, but we were just like let everybody else get their shit signed, and then we're gonna go like chase the night. And he was just like, "I'm gonna go back to my hotel." He's Thanks, like, I, guys. "I'm gonna have a nine dollar Heineken." And in my he hotel handled room. it in a way that let us know we were not the first white boys and, to think of, and this. that he was a grown up now. <laughs> yes, yes, which I hope we are now yes. too. And to his credit, that night when I had him sign my copy of Drama City, I was like. I have to say, I have a novel coming out, and you're a huge influence on it, which is true. Not as good as his books by any measure, but I was reading a lot of his books when I wrote it. And he was so gracious. He wrote, in my book, uh, Good Luck with the Novel. A few months later, he blurbed it. Damn. Why would he do that? A kind guy. Anyway, he came here straight from the airport. He flew out for TCA. He was a little tired. You might hear a little bit in his voice, but he was so no, game great. to talk about this with us. Uh, we love him. We love this show. We love the fact that he has the keys to the car on the show in a way he didn't before. He was always, you know, a lieutenant helping David Simon. This is all, they're, they're partners a lot of in him this, in this, yeah. There's a lot more of him A lot of Richard show. Price, a lot of David Simon, a lot of George Pelicanos. And I'll tell you what, um, when we started this podcast, yeah. you know, I think we, you and I, like, you're always going to have, like, an attachment to what you're doing at a certain point in beginnings. But Andy and I started this podcast at the, the very beginning of Downton Abbey. So you could say the golden age of television. For sure. No, we were when we started this podcast, Breaking Bad was still on, Mad Men was still on. Uh, I think Sopranos just ended, Downton Abbey was beginning. There was just like Downton Abbey was beginning. No, but I just mean like it was a very exciting time we, in television. We talked a lot about Downton Abbey in that first episode. That was dope. I this show, The Deuce, takes me back to that time. Yeah. This tapestry of characters, this like, I don't know what the next scene is gonna be. So much of television now is so formulaic. So much of it is I don't know. I know that there's there's parts of this show that you feel like you might be familiar with, but the depth of knowledge about the subject matter, the depth of empathy for the characters, yes. every character, every single character. From from pimps to hustlers to yeah, cops. Just everybody. There's not a single can, archetype in this I, show. There's something? just empathy. You don't always need to reinvent the wheel because you know what wheels do? They roll. There you go, man. Let's, let's talk to George Pelicano. Let's bounce. So we're extremely excited to be joined by one of, I can say our, our favorite writers, sure. a person who we have talked about many times, and now we've summoned him, like Beetlejuice, here into the room with us, 
George Pelicanos. Welcome. Thank you. We are reading your books for almost as long as you and I have been friends, right? Yes. Yeah. So we, last almost the last twenty years. Yeah. <laughs> We've been tearing through them together every time, and we're very excited to have you here to talk about uh, the Deuce, the new show on HBO premiering. Help me out. September September tenth. September tenth. But we're, when we're putting this pod up, we're recording it in July. We're going to put this pod up at the end of August because the premiere episode will be available to HBO subscribers on go and now, and potentially on demand. Yeah, to, uh, to end of August. I don't, I don't know the exact date. So this is a show uh, about Times Square in the 1970s that you created with David Simon, who you worked with on The Wire and Treme. Right. Um, I guess the first question is probably an obvious one. You're going to have to answer a lot. You're a DC guy. Your books are DC. Baltimore, just up 95 a little bit, but now you've taken the car even further up the road <laughs> to New York. How's that feel? Um, it's it's sort of fun to to go to these places and 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 kind of get out of the car and and walk around and figure out what's going on. It's it's not that different than what I do at home, um, and. That's what I did in New Orleans. You know, I'd never right. been there. So, but I c- kind of fell in love with it as soon as I got there because in a lot of ways it was similar to Washington. This is the first period thing I've done, right. which is different still. It's hard enough to figure New York out in the present yeah. and then to go back. And, uh, uh, y- you know, but we, we worked on this for a long time. I mean, th- this has been three or four years now. I think you alluded to it. You you were nice enough to come on the podcast with me about five years ago. Yeah, and I think you alluded to a project you were working on, I, I, which this may have been it. Yeah, we were t- we were talking about it, and uh, so we've had a lot of time to research, and we used um, uh, consultants in every sort of every aspect of this. So mm-hmm. we had former porn stars and uh, porn directors, uh, police. Yeah, feminists, you know, activists, all these people that were there in this in the maelstrom, you know, and and we picked their brains. Um, but it's a responsibility to to a lot of people remember Times Square in the seventies. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So you're not gonna you're not gonna pull the wool over anybody's <laughs> eyes. You got to get it right. Yeah, and then there's also the it's not even the, if you don't re- if you remember it or not. It takes on this sort of cultural. Mythic yeah, quality. Yeah, this hold it where it's like even if you weren't there, you sort of have an idea. If somebody says Times Square in the seventies, you have right. these ideas about what's going on there. Was there like um, a historical moment or a historical figure that that was the the sort of trigger to to, to investigate this story for you guys? Yeah, uh, we we were uh, a guy named Mark Henry Johnson who had worked for us as a location manager in New Orleans brought this uh, a, a man to us who had been uh, mobbed up in a bar in the 70s in Times Square. He owned a bar. He had a twin brother. His, bro- his brother was a ne'er-do-well, you know, yeah. degenerate gambler, all that stuff. And uh, and then, you know, this guy uh, did such a good job, and he was honest with the money, which was very unusual, that they kept giving him more responsibility. And it then he became, he was running massage parlors, and they had, they had their hands in, uh, you know the P, uh, the uh, live sex shows, all this stuff, and but the thing was is that his bar was a place where um, this was also very unusual because this is a guy from Bay Ridge in the '60s, rough and tumble, you know, Italian guy, but he was really um, 
even when you talked to him, he was very – his attitude was live and let live. Like he didn't care who came into his bar. Mm-hmm. So it became a place where a lot of free sh- freaks washed up on the front doorstep, you know. Um, and you had um, – uh, you know, you had transgender people. You had all kinds of people that weren't really welcome in other places. Mm-hmm. And then the downtown crowd started coming up, the art, pre-punk art mm-hmm. crowd. And um, his girlfriend, who was running the bar, sort of took it over and and invited all those people in. And they were putting art up on the walls. And it was a real interesting place. Um, and, you know, it was mafia-owned. There's a great line in the – in I think it's in the pilot – where one of the pimps is like, what happened to this place? This is my after-hours cocktail <laughs> yeah, spot. Right. And it's like, oh, and it's like, it's not safe for pimps anymore because it's become so popular. But, but the, all this is what, it reminds me of what you said a moment ago, George, about like the maelstrom. Because one of the things that is most fascinating about the show you've made and really most appealing about it is that all the different strands, the the hookers, the pimps, the journalists, the, the strivers from Brooklyn, they're all, they all know each other. They all cross over. Yeah. There's it's a small a, world. There's that amazing scene in, in, in the second episode. I don't think this is a spoiler, but it just speaks to the relationship between the prostitutes and the police when they all order Chinese food together. These are people who know each other. And there's a, there's a, there's a I don't know if respect is the word or tolerance or acceptance, but there is a, there's a feeling of community that is not – that is surprising, I guess, for a mm-hmm. show that deals with such uh, serious subject matter. Yeah, they're certainly all in it together. Mm-hmm. And and Vincent even lived in an SRO right there. He right. didn't want to be anywhere else. It was fun. You know, that's the thing is that it gets left out of the conversation about all the uh, the degradation of, of Times Square and everything was people were having fun. Mm-hmm. And even, even um, in the early days at the dawn of porn as we know it, it, was, it wasn't so much – uh, like a porn actress, you know, a diva or something like that, going to do these movies. It was maybe a couple would say, "Let's go down there. They're, they're shooting blues. Mm-hmm. Let's go down there and smoke some joints and do it." You mm-hmm. know, we'll have sex on camera. Right. It was all. It was all new. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. Um. I, I'm happy to hear you say the word fun. I want people who are about to tune in to understand that that. One of the great things about The Deuce is that it does have a sense of excitement and fun in addition to all the subject matter that you're handling. And, you know, I, I – There's I, a kind I, of – there's a feeling in the – especially in the first episode where it's like an alternative title for the show could have been Night People because they all seem to have this sort mm-hmm. of affinity for like avoiding the dawn. You know, you want to – you don't want to get yeah. caught by the dawn. They're out. But, you know, the cops even once they're off duty, you can tell they're like kind of lo- lo- loving it being out. I loved that part of it. I loved that also, you know, and we can talk more about this, but really captures the quality that New York has to that you could just – that anything could happen on any given night. You know, that idea of just sort of bumping into somebody and your life could change in some way. I loved that. And yet the ending of the pilot yeah. um, brings you back down to <laughs> sure. in a very, elementally yeah. to yeah. this is also a really dangerous place, yeah. you know, and, and some of these people can be can be pretty bad. Let's talk about that balance because I've seen uh, your creative partner in this and in other projects, David Simon, making making jokes before everyone else does about how, you know, here comes Simon to ruin porn for everyone. <laughs> uh, because, you know, the, the Wire and Treme have had – are incredibly funny at times. But mm-hmm. he has a reputation for being, you know, journalistic and very serious about the subject matter. Yep. Um, I wondered what your role in navigating the subject matter was with him and um, with the rest of the the creative team you had put together, because you know your your books 
are serious as well, but they've also at times embraced genre mm-hmm. more openly. You know, we were, I know sure. we were going to bring up King Sucker Man at one point. Uh, we were inevitably going to bring it up in this conversation, but you have that streak in you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Proudly, you know? Yeah. Um, and and David, David has sort of a grasp of the bigger uh, issues and the bigger picture mm-hmm. than I do. I'm more, I get down into the details and the, so I'll give you an example: is the uh, the scene with the pimps in the in the, in, uh, in uh, Port Authority in the beginning, yeah. watching the girls go by and talking about it. It's a great scene. Well, I wrote that scene originally, and all that stuff about you know, look at that onion and all that stuff, <laughs> and I'd ride her like Man of War and all that. That was all me, right? And then David got a hold of it, and he put the stuff in about Here Nixon. Here comes Nixon, yeah, Vietnam. <laughs> you know, he blew, he blew it up into something bigger. Yeah, and it, it would have been a good scene without him getting in there. But he made it. He made it something else that has a lot, a little more resonance. You know what I mean? But that seems like a very healthy partnership thing. Because you need both. You need Nixon and the Onion. I I think so. <laughs> um, I was actually this is a good good way of bringing this up. So you're reunited. Price is involved in this show, but there's also the, the a lot of the um, production and creative team of these previous shows, like Alexa, uh, Alexa Fogel and Cat, the casting, right. Rose Dickerson shooting some of these ep- directing some of these episodes. But I was curious about how. The writing process has changed from working on The Wire to working on Treme to doing this show because um, it, it, unlike most pilots, seems to have its voice down from the first 30 seconds. You're mm-hmm. just like you're immediately brought into this world. Everybody's voice is distinctive. I think actually the time when I first noticed that is when the two Franco characters first talked to each other. And I was like, oh, man, this thing is really – they just put oil on this pan. And – I was wondering, like, if you could talk a little bit about process and, and, and how that's changed over the years for you guys. Well, I would say um, the the wire had a pretty high level of testosterone in that room, mm-hmm. and it was um, there was a lot of there was a lot of argument, and some of it got heated, and so on. And but it was basically we we had um, uh, we had occasionally we had women in there that were you know, but. For the most part, it was a it was a men's world in there, and and, and it was a murderer's row of writers. We've talked yeah. about this before. It was you and Simon and and Richard Price and Dennis Lane was there one year. Yep, uh, Ed Burns. Ed Burns, not bad. Former cop. Yep, Baltimore cop. So we we knew from jump that on this one that we needed a different kind of um, uh, complexion of the room, and so we went out to um, two female novelists that we like a lot, Megan Abbott and uh, Lisa Lutz. I'm glad you mentioned them because speaking about Murderer's Row again, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, and um, and we got Richard back, mm-hmm. who Richard's the guy who wrote the, the Chinese food scene with the prostitute <laughs> and police because that's a real thing. I mean, that's yeah. that's where Richard's invaluable because he's, he's been there since the 60s, you know. In one, New York, and one of his most, uh, I think, un- overlooked books is Ladies' Man, which is just this yeah, world. I love the 70s. that book. Yeah. It's a terrific book. People check that book out. And if you like New York nightlife, Lush Life is probably the modern, the best modern book mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, Lush, Lush Life's a good book. So, um, and then we have gay writers too, because we have a gay character that we're going to follow, and that we're going to go downtown with him and stuff like that. And I didn't, David and I didn't feel. Uh, really qualified to to get deep into that character, you mm-hmm. know. So we really made an effort this time to have everybody represented. And and uh you know, I th- I think um you guys haven't gotten to the episode yet, but the the episodes that the uh women wrote were really good. 
and and different too. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a different tone to them. It's exciting to hear you talk about um, individual writers' contributions because you know one thing of this auteur era of television is that there's the name at the top. And that name rewrites everything. And then if you worked on the show, you worked on it. But what you did is often lost. So it's nice to hear because, you, you, you know, you and, and David have such a tradition of bringing in strong voices to let them do what they do best. I, I hope so. I mean, I, I don't really, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not all in on that theory about the auteur. And, mm-hmm. um, it's super collaborative. And, and, and we try to – it's true that when you watch, when you watch a season of – any television, it should sound like it was written by one person mm-hmm. um, for cohesion purposes mm-hmm. and continuity of voice and so on. But we try to give everybody enough space to put their personality into it, and I think you'll see it. You know, you'll know if you've read if you've read Richard or, or Megan or Lisa's mm-hmm. books, you'll see their personality in, the, in their episodes. One more thing about the idea of um, how television is being made now. I, I'm very curious your perspective on it because. After watching the pilot and watching the second episode, I was I was all in, but it felt there was something surprising about the show. Uh, there are a lot of things that are surprising about what we're seeing, but I realized it w- it felt almost old fashioned, and I mean this in the best possible way. That what your show did so brilliantly in the pilot is just say, "Here's a world, here's some characters in it, welcome, basically, and you know, there's more to come." So much of TV now is you know like movies made for the poster. There mm-hmm. is from from right from the beginning, there's a there's a, a question that's going to be answered. There's a crime that needs to be avenged. You know, there, there, right. there, there, you have that momentum and that sort of an attempt to get the audience in and running with you. I love that you didn't do that. It, it feels so open-ended and exciting for that reason. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you're in, usually encouraged to have some, like a big oh shit moment in the pilot. Right, where, the bag of money. Yeah. yeah. And we, and, you know, it helps that we've been at HBO for 15, 20 years. Right. They know what we do. They they have some they have some faith in us you know what I mean and um, yeah I mean we we kind of avoid we avoid those tropes if we can and um, but I, you know I'm pretty confident people are going to stay with us just because it's good yeah <laughs> I'm glad you, know you say it you're right <laughs> I wanted I mean you know and one of the things the show does have going for it is the uh, not only the, the across the board level of of performance, but it has some star power. And I have to admit, like, you know, when it first got announced, I go up and down with Franco depending, you know, on, on the role. But I was like, I was sincerely blown away. This is something that could very easily go wrong is the, I'm playing my own twin bit. And I also was just so, I think surprised by how immersed he seemed in it because he's somebody who has this public persona of Mm -hmm. almost like a performance artist. And he just seemed like a, a 70s New York character actor all of a sudden. It was so it was, great to see him act just like, just bring Just it. waiting for a subway yeah. and smoking a cigarette. It was smoking great. a lot of cigarettes. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's, he's a, you know, he's a full-blown man in this thing. Yeah. Where he's been, you know, a lot of people are expecting the stoner or something like that. Or He's he surprised us in, in that way. Um, I, look, none of us were sure with each other. You know what I mean? We hadn't really, um, in previous shows we've done, we didn't, they weren't headlined by big movie stars. Mm-hmm. So we were, you know, we had to think about that. But also, um, you're asking, um, you know, Maggie Gyllenhaal, for example, had to have a lot of faith in us because mm-hmm. we asked her to do a lot of things that are um, really exposing herself, uh, not not just in terms of the nudity, but <clears throat> the acts, you know, what she's yeah. actually being asked to do. And 
But how do you, you know, the thing I kept asking is, what's it like for a woman to, to sleep with eight guys that she's repulsed by, every, different guys every night, mm-hmm. you know? Like, so we had to show it. You know, we had to show with that. We had to take her down mm-hmm. uh, to the bottom before we could start lifting her up again. And and she, she trusted, you know, she had to trust us. And that was that was, um, and all the actresses did. I mean, they we, our partner Nina Noble had meetings with all the women before we shot each episode. You know, if we were asking to do something, Nina would have a, a nudity meeting with them mm-hmm. and tell them. And then you know, when we got in the editing room, there was a there was a lot of talk about, you know, can you take a few seconds off of that? We're lingering too mm-hmm. long on her breasts. You know what I mean? Like there, we're we were conscious of. We're not trying to turn anybody on in the audience. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and it's a real fine line. You can't do a story about porn without showing it what you're talking about. And yet, you you don't want to titillate anybody because look, frankly, you you don't have to subscribe to HBO to to watch porn. You can get it free on your laptop. You know that's not what this is. Yeah. So it was it was a lot of tricky navigation on this one. I've heard from people who have who have visited. The sets of, of of porn films, they say there's nothing more boring than downtime on a porn set, you know. And so there's something. It's a very tricky line to walk, but something I think you've managed to pull off. Where the and it, and it comes up again and again in the dialogue that sex work is work before it's sex. Yeah, and that's a recurring theme in it. So when we see people nude, it's like almost like it becomes seeing them in their, a doctor in their scrubs. This is their this is their work, right? And and projecting that from the beginning, that must have been. That must have required a lot of you mentioned four or five years of development. There must have been a lot of conversations about that very thing about tone. Yeah, and and in, in the writers' room as well. Before mm-hmm. anything was written, uh, we talked about that. In getting back to James with his with the twins, mm-hmm. um, we uh, deliberately didn't make them look too different. Mm-hmm. They, they both have mustaches. Their haircuts are very similar. James did all that. He differentiated them in his acting, mm-hmm. and um, we wanted him to. I mean, that that was a challenge for him, but he we laid it down, and he he brought it, man. I wanted to ask also about since we're talking about the sex work, the the pimps on the show, the uh-huh. actors, the 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 portrayal. Right. Um, I mean, you've got Method Man, an incredible wig. You've got Tariq from the Roots giving that monologue we're talking about at the beginning. He's terrific. Talk about a balancing act because these are outsized personalities. We're drawn to them. You know, they have some of the best lines, certainly the best wardrobe. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also best cars. Best car. Yeah. Best cars parked on the street, yeah. by the way. Great that spots. Was, that, yeah. That was it's hard to park of, outside of Port Authority. That's man. the only thing that took me out of it, to be <laughs> honest, was that Cadillac parked in front of the Port Authority. Um, but yeah, but there's a but there's the violence. And there's some, you know, there's something lurking at the heart of it. And you have an actor, Gary Carr, who I've never, I don't think I've seen before, mm-hmm. who I think is might be the breakout star, at least of the fir- first few episodes. Right, and I had to look that up. I was shocked. Right. He's an incredible performer. Yeah, he's great. Um, I, I, I think, one, I mean, one thing we're really proud of is that every one of those pimps has a different personality. Yeah. They're, they're humans, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and um, you, we always say, like, they might be bad guys, but they don't know it, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, if you read pimp by iceberg slim the whole book is an, is a is him rationalizing who he is you know my dad was cuckolded by my mom and mm-hmm. i'm never going to let a woman treat me mm-hmm. you know all that stuff he never admits to doing anything wrong or having a personality flaw mm-hmm. and th- that's 
the way these guys were too. They're like, you know, hey, you know, bitch needs have a man to hold her money. Mm-hmm. You know, it just Otherwise, makes sense, right? <laughs> hey guys, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Audible. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, and business information providers. Unlike a streaming or rental service with Audible, you own your books so you can access them from anytime, anywhere, from almost any device, including your iPhone, iPad, Android, Amazon Fire tablets, or Windows phone. Plus, thanks to the great listen guarantee, if you don't like your title, you can just swap it out for a new one. Not to mention, Audible Channels gives you a collection of exclusive originals, short stories, and comedy, so you always have something new to listen to. I love listening to books on Audible when I'm in my car. You know, spend a lot of traffic, a lot of time in traffic in Los Angeles. And, you know, Andy and I have been doing these double down book clubs. It's great to check them out on Audible. I love listening to crime novels, history books on Audible. It's a, it's a great addition to my daily commute, which is always a long one, no matter where you are in Los Angeles. You can get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at www.audible.com slash watch. That's www.audible.com slash watch, A-U-D-I-B-L-E, for a free audiobook with your 30-day trial. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Proper Cloth. Finding a dress shirt that fits is hard. Seriously, something's always off. Too blousey, too long, too short, whatever it is. Thankfully, ordering a custom fit shirt has never been easier with Proper Cloth. At propercloth.com, you can easily create a custom shirt size in seconds just by answering 10 simple questions. Not to mention, you can choose from over 20 collar styles, 10 cuff styles, and 500 fabric styles from classic to business to completely customize your shirt and get the style that you want. The team at Proper Cloth works with the best fabric producers from around the world and only buy fabrics that meet the highest quality expectations. Each one of their shirts goes through an extensive quality control testing, so you're getting the absolute best in quality and craftsmanship. And best of all, Proper Cloth guarantees a perfect fit, meaning that if somehow your shirt doesn't fit perfectly, they'll remake that thing for free. This is the future of shirts. These shirts are made completely custom for you, starting at just $80. Stop wearing shirts that don't fit. Start looking your best with a custom-fitted shirt. Go to propercloth.com BS today. Enter the gift code BS and you get $20 off your first shirt. How amazing is that? Do it today. Um, I was kind of curious, one of my favorite little moments, I think it's in towards the end of the first episode, is whenever Glory meets with Candy for the first time on the street, and she's like, you know, I wanted to come get some tips from you guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's this great shot, and I think it's Michelle McLaren directed the first episode in the background, Marquis is the conformist. (laughs) And I love the... um, New York has like this collision p- point of high and low culture, especially Times Square. Yeah. Speaking of like high and low, because it's it's a Bertolucci movie sitting next to, you know, a shoot 'em up, probably, you know, proto ex- exploitation movie or whatever. And a little Baltimore. You get John Waters on the marquee early on, too. Did you ever visit yes. <laughs> New York at that time and have that kind of that experience of feeling like so intellectually stimulated while also so viscerally stimulated? Obviously, I didn't uh I didn't start going to New York until I began publishing novels. Really? Yeah. So I had no experience with that city. I'm 100% DC. Um, but all that stuff with the mo- the mashup of the movies is, and I, I made sure of that is they're all real mm-hmm. um, pairings. You know, we went back and oh, that was all really played. That's great. Yeah, and they played together on the same bill. And um, and 
John's film, I guess it was Mondo Trasha, was playing mm-hmm. in New York at the time. And, you know, if I kept an eye on that stuff. Like, um, Leone had this film, um, Duck You Sucker, with yeah. James Coburn, and it was out. But somebody, uh, I guess they, they looked it up wrong or something, and they made the posters for it, A Fistful of Dynamite, which was the re-release a few years later when they were, United Artists was trying to save, make some money off this this disaster yeah, and and make it look like a new film. And we shot it. I had to get it out of the, I had to get it out because I knew it was wrong. I mean, you can't do that. Yeah. That kind of stuff will just drive you nuts every time you see it probably. <laughs> One thing I'm noticing in the early going of the show is that obviously there's the, there's the log line, you know, this is about Times Square. This is about a changing, um, changing era about the sex industry. Um, but that's, that's also just setting, you know, I think in a way mm-hmm. the shows that you've worked on with David, a lot of them are about um, the old ways dying out and something replacing them and who gets to take advantage of that, who gets taken advantage of. There's always that culture clash and that collision. There's a scene in the second episode where the mobsters are like, you know, someone needs to clean this place up. And uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, you, you, one of the joys of watching the show is you think, well, he, what if someone told him that Disney would be the people that did it? You know, it would be another 25 years. What thinking do you guys do in the room big picture like that you know mm-hmm. obviously the wire had a point of view right from the beginning this show is exciting to me because it is both entertaining and freeform but you do have that those large societal yeah shifting things at play just by nature of what you've chosen to to, to tell us well we know where we're going and and from the beginning we knew that um it hasn't really been discussed but in the press but next year will be next season will be a different era Oh. oh, and we're we're telling a big story about the rise and fall of Times Square. Oh, that's exciting! Wow. We're gonna get we're gonna get to the eighties and everything that happened then. Too. Oh, because as soon as you said like the like the post punk and art, I was excited. I was say, I've always wanted someone to do that show, so you guys might do it. Well, you will always have that 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 flavor in there, whatever's going on at yeah. the time, you know. Um, but um, next year we'll we're still going up the hill. We'll be in the, the really mad mad time of the late seventies. When everything's just sort of like just got completely bonkers there. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, a lot of things happened in the 80s. AIDS came to town, which was yeah. the, big, the big thing. Koch shut down the bathhouses and, um, and, and uh, film became video and the porn industry moved out west to the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> This is exciting. What, yeah. You mentioned at the beginning that you hadn't done a period piece before. What, having done it now, I mean, the, the logistics of it are just jaw-dropping. I mean, I don't know how you guys did it because yeah. you're it's filming a lot in of your, garbage. <laughs> a lot of garbage, a lot yeah. of cars. Yeah, we had to age all that garbage, too. <laughs> what, 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 in your mind, having done it now, what are the advantages of telling a story um, through a lens like that? But also, obviously, what are the disadvantages? And I imagine most of them are production-based. It was just, I mean, the advantages that we were, we were – excited to do it and you know how i am about the 70s and i i wanted i've been wanting to do something like this for a long time mm-hmm. so that was great um i got curtis mayfield into the opening credits yeah, very nice, a nice touch yeah. um you, you know the disadvantage is that it's really hard it's hard to shoot in new york anyway but to try so we couldn't there is no Times square anymore so we had to go up to amsterdam and around 164th mm-hmm and uh, we dressed the first floor of a street, doubled for 8th Avenue because it was wide enough to be um, two-way up there and uh, 42nd and 8th. And 
And then everything above that is is so we built the we built the marquees, the movie mm-hmm. marquees, but everything above that is CGI. Oh wow! Yeah, because I was wondering because you guys aren't doing just like an establishing shot and then going yeah. to an interior. It's like there are just like these nice long yeah like spend some time on the curb. It, it's exciting. Moments. One thing people never talk about enough is that Mad Men never went outside. They never. Yeah, it was all interiors. Yeah. <laughs> it was all interiors, and it actually helped with the claustrophobia of the show. But then you're like, well, boy, that saved them. You know, the one a lot thing, of money. I yeah. had actually a, a time period question. I know you're, we don't want to keep you too long, but I, I would imagine that there's a lot of things that you can double check in terms of, okay, this movie theater right. is playing this. How hard is it to replicate patterns of dialogue, slang, things like that? Obviously, you remember it from your childhood or whatever, yeah. but you know, how did people talk in New York that was different than in D.C.? Because I think that a lot of slang mm-hmm. didn't have the – cross-city transportation yeah, that it right. does now because of social media. Although you got a half-smoke into this show. You did get a half-smoke. <laughs> There's a little DC in there. Um, but, yeah, I was wondering about, like, how do you check how a pimp talked in Times Square in 1971? It's a good question. I mean, we we one of the reasons we we thought about, we talked about shooting this somewhere else hmm. that we could do it cheaper and you could go to Cleveland and make it look like New York, you know. But we the big thing was the actors. And you, it's very hard to duplicate that, the New York, uh, not just the accents, but the inflections. and But also, we had enough actors that um, could come to us and say, that's not how, that's not how somebody said that in New York back in the day, you know. Mm-hmm. We got, um, you have to be real diligent, I yeah. think, and not assume anything. Because it, it is very different. Um, coming where I, I came from, I, I don't I don't um, just write it. I talk to people, yeah, and and listen. You know what I mean. And um, hopefully we get it right. Before we let you go, we have to talk books a little okay. bit. Um, this show has dominated your life. You're, you've made this show it's incredible. Um, ha- do you have a new book as well? I feel terrible asking you this because you've no. been busy enough. But no, I know you've I'm always happy yes because I I. I had – for a couple of years, I haven't written a book working on this. And then uh, we wrapped and we finished post at the end of December. And I just – I bore down and I wrote a book in the first quarter of this year. Good for wow. you. Wow. And uh, it's coming out next year. It's called The Man Who Came Uptown. That's exciting. Another DC novel. But um, I, I feel great about the fact that I wrote a book. <laughs> yeah. what, what, was it, what was it like getting that muscle going again? Was it it easier? wasn't hard because uh, a lot of it deals with being in a, in the D.C. jail and it's about a D.C. – we have a library in the D.C. jail. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I do reading programs down there with, um, with the different uh, units like the 50 and older guys and stuff like that. So I had a lot of material like up here. Yeah. Mm. And – it's so one hard to get into it because I was noticed and when we spoke a few years ago. You had the Spiro Lucas books had just come out, and uh, you talked about spending a lot more time on set. And then I think the last thing that came out was the Martini shot, which is about being on a set, which was a little bit of both. And I was curious which 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 half of the brain was going to win out for a while. But I'm glad the books are coming back as well. That's a tough balance to do. I got you know. Look, I probably have ten more years in this business, and then then I'm just I'm not going to retire. I'm just going to write books until my death, whenever that is. Well, hopefully not for a long time. <laughs> it, I asked you this last time. I have to ask again. It, is there any movement on book um, on TV projects from other characters? Is there? Why, why can't we get our Nick yeah, Stefano show? Forever, man. <laughs> <laughs> we, we want it so Come badly. Um, you know, I just had a meeting with my agents about that, and we're going to try and get 
going on it again. I, um, I really want to do Hard Revolution. That's yeah. my I wondered and, which one you would pick. I, yeah, and I, I have written it. Um, it. It went somewhere, and then it didn't get made, and now I, I'm going to try to get it back and take it somewhere else. And, and that's a period piece as well. Yeah, but I would I would insist I wouldn't do it anywhere but D.C., so. I mean, it's a, sort of a goal of mine to get the film business going in Washington, too. Yeah. Get a little industry going there before – if I can leave that one thing behind. That would be really cool. Yeah. Because there's not very much, right, it, if anything. I think even even Veep was in Baltimore for a while, which isn't the same thing, and then they even they came out here. Right. Even even the Americans, which is supposed to be set – It's in my old neighborhood in, in Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> which <laughs> which is very disconcerting. Well, it's all about the tax credits, you know? Right. And um, I think when we shot the pilot of this – there were 40 productions happening simultaneously in New, in New York. Yeah. You know. It's a ton. Right. It's great for New York. Yeah. And, and if you're a crew person and you get on a show like Law & Order, you can not only give birth to your children but send them to college. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and I'd like to do that for people in Washington, man. What did you – how do you feel about New York now having spent time in it and writing the stories? Because one thing that's so cool about that – we keep referring to it, these writers' rooms that you've put together for these shows. I think of Price as a New York guy. Simon's a Baltimore guy. Lahane was a Boston guy. You're a D.C. guy. But in some level, and we love books by – we talk about them on our show a lot. We love books by all of you. Mm-hmm. The, the language of cities seems to have some – there's a common aspect to it of, of the, the perspective that you have. You're looking at the street first. You're look, giving people dignity on a level that they often aren't given. Um, was that your way into New York, into writing the story? Yeah, I think that, I think the shows are all linked. In that respect, they're they're an examination of a city and and why things happen the way they do, and um, and I'm real interested in that. So when I got to New York, I was ready to um, to live it, you know. And 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 I did. First thing I did was I learned the subway system because I was really interested in that. You have and, our condolences. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you got to watch it. <laughs> I moved just in time. I think <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna about to close the L train for a year. For, I think. For, yeah. So, um, but. Uh, even though people complain about it, I think the subway system is pretty great, man. It was the best, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I miss it out here. I, I sent you guys 20 minutes in the wrong direction because yeah. I don't understand driving anymore. Um, we should let you go. Last thing before we do, um, Chris and I on this podcast, we have a book club um, mm-hmm. where we ask our listeners to read a book and we all do it together. I think Sweet Forever is coming up in our book club. Oh, yeah? Yeah. How do you feel about that? I don't know how you've, you know, you've, you've written so many books since then. Um, your writing has changed a lot. Right. Um, that's a That's a... I mean, it's a it's now a period novel. Like Washington, right. that Washington doesn't exist, exist anymore. And um, I think I think about that book a lot during this time of year, just because of the bias, the Len the bias, bias uh, thing that framed it. Yeah, yeah, and just becoming out of the draft and, and everything. Well, the, the, I mean, the Coke thing was was at its raging peak, but you'd be surprised how many people quit using Coke because Len bias yeah. is death. Yeah, like a lot of people did, and. Um, and it's a tragedy, you know, but it was it was in that time when everything was falling apart in Washington. So it's probably, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to know what people think of it because it's a really dark novel, probably one of the most the darkest novels I've written mm-hmm. in a in a in a time that warranted a novel like that. But I would never write that book today. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because you've changed, or the city has changed. The or? city's changed so much that that uh, it would be uh, like a dilettante. Talking about things that um, th- that he didn't really feel anymore. It's interesting as a fan of the books to think about whether 
that what has changed the most because Nick Stefanos' DC is mm-hmm. very different from Spiro Lucas's DC. Yeah. But DC has changed, but you've changed as well in your in your point of view about the world and, and the city as well. Which do you think has changed more in the intervening years? You or the city? I think the city. You know, I, I was um, I was single when I first started writing and then I got married Then I had a family. I raised a family. My kids are in their 20s. Um, all that stuff changes you. But it's not anywhere near the, the, the magnitude of the change that I've seen in Washington. Yeah. It's just incredible. Yeah. You know, and I go back to the riots in the 60s. When I was a little kid, I saw everything burn down, you know. And then there was, there was 25, 30 years of nothing, like just tumbleweeds blowing across the street. And know? now it's one of the richest cities in America. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, uh, when I was growing up, D.C. was 80% black. Now it's less than 50%. Yeah. So the entire uh, character of the city has changed. Hmm. And there's some, a lot of good things have come of that, too. There's more jobs and, you know, all, all of that sort of thing. But we, we lost a lot, too. Well, I hope people I – mean, we're going to have people check it out and we'll let you know. Maybe you can come back on and, and answer some reader questions if, or something. If I'm out here, I'll come on. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on and, and congratulations on the show. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Appreciate it. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Proper Cloth. Finding a dress shirt that fits is hard – because something's always off. Too blousey, too long, collar doesn't look right. Thankfully, ordering a custom fit shirt has never been easier, though, with Proper Cloth. At propercloth.com, you can easily create a shirt size in seconds by just answering 10 simple questions. Not to mention, you can choose from over 20 collar styles, 10 cuff styles, and 500 fabric styles, from classic to business. Completely customize your shirt and get the style that you want. The team at Proper Cloth works with the best fabric producers from around the world and only buy fabrics that meet their high-quality expectations. Each one of their shirts goes through an extensive quality control testing, so you're getting the absolute best quality and craftsmanship. And best of all, Proper Cloth guarantees a perfect fit, meaning that if somehow your shirt doesn't fit perfectly, they'll just remake that bad boy for free. This is the future of shirts. These shirts are made completely custom for you, and they start at just $80. Stop wearing shirts that don't fit. You don't have to do that to yourself anymore. Start looking your best with a custom-fitted shirt. Go to propercloth.com, P-R-O-P-E-R-C-L-O-T-H.com slash BS today. Enter the gift code BS and you get $20 off your first shirt. Do it today. 